0: I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the very last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. And almost one of the very last chapters, chapter 19, we're coming to the end of our study. We'll be looking today at Revelation chapter 19. <clears throat> I've had folks asking me what we were going to be speaking about in the midst of the crisis that's going on and I tell them that we are very well suited as we have been working our way through this book revelation it is a book that is very well suited to speak to God's people in the midst of even the current crisis that we are dealing with it's a letter that has been written to Christians who were in the first century dealing with things like suffering and persecution and doubt and anxiety and fears And God wrote them this letter that he might encourage them, that he might strengthen his people, that they might persevere and have hope and even find joy in the gospel in the midst of their suffering. We have talked uh, uh, many times over the course of this uh, uh, looking at this letter uh, that the overall message, the big picture of what God is communicating to his people is that he is in control of history and that he wins, that Jesus Christ is the one true king who wins in the end. And if we are in Christ, then we win with him. And now we're moving into this very last section of the book, chapters 19 through the end of the book. And we'll begin to see this picture of what's taking place as Jesus returns, as he comes back for his his second coming. And we see what happens then and what comes next. Listen, as I read to you from. Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse one, John says, after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more, they cried out, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of the captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts through the work of your Holy Spirit and help us to see wonderful things, gospel-oriented things from this portion of your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you spend very much time reading the Bible, then you will see one of the things that shows up quite often throughout the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, are references to food, particularly uh, feasts and celebrations that are oriented around food. We see it in the very earliest chapters of the Bible in Genesis. We see that Adam and Eve had the ability to feast on Any number of trees in the garden that were given to them to do so. But we also see that they chose to disobey God and they feasted from the tree by which they were not supposed to eat and the impact that that caused. We see... Uh, food and feasting taking place throughout the Old Testament as we see Old Testament Israel being given very, various feasts and festivals uh, that they might orient their lives and uh, their understanding of who God is. Uh, we see the Passover feast and recognition and remembrance of God saving his people out of Egypt. In Jesus's ministry, we see over and over again, he is eating with people, eating with sinners. He is actually accused of eating with sinners because of how important having those feasts, those meals together were. Jesus gathers his disciples together before he goes to the cross and he has a meal with them. He has a feast. It's called the Lord's Supper. That is being used by God's people throughout church history to continue to remind us of the gospel and to feed us spiritually and nourish us spiritually. And then we also have throughout the Bible these references to a feast that will take place in heaven. So we see feasts that play an important role in the way that God relates to all people and especially the way that God relates to his covenant people. And as we come here to the end of Revelation, toward the end of Revelation, chapter 19, we read about that ultimate feast, the marriage supper of the lamb. Actually, here in Revelation 19, we see two different feasts that are mentioned. There is the marriage supper of the lamb, but there's also this one that is called the great supper of God one is a celebration in glory for all of God's people the other a horrific nightmare that leads to eternal damnation and here's the thing every single human being who has ever lived will be at one feast or the other. So what I want us to do today is to look at these two feasts and then to consider what difference they make for us in our lives. So first of all, the wedding feast, we see that in verses six through ten. John says he heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with pure with fine linen, bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, to understand what's going on here, we need to know a little bit of the context of what marriages were like in the first century Uh, the context obviously is the first century it's when this letter was written to the people that were reading it for the first time and they would have been uh, very knowledgeable of what uh, marriage was like in the first century and there are definite similarities between the first century practices and what we think of today as marriage but there are also some significant differences Uh, in the first century uh, getting married actually involved two separate ceremonies that were linked together one was called betrothal and the other was the actual wedding itself. These two ceremonies were separated by time and they culminated in a feast. Betrothal is similar to what we think of as an engagement, yet there are differences. A betrothal in the first century was a much more formal and binding commitment. We have a sense of that uh, because we give engagement rings and there's a sense of a pledge, a promise that you intend to marry with one another. But there are also differences between how we think of an engagement An engagement for us, although it does have some sense of weight, can also be something that is it is put off, it is delayed or it is even canceled Uh, and it can be done fairly easy without too significant of consequences. But a, but a betrothal in the first century was much more formal. It was much more binding. A man and a woman would gather together with witnesses. The terms of the covenant marriage would be read, would be acknowledged, would be agreed to. And then a blessing would be pronounced. And from that moment on, the man and the woman would be considered legally married. But... They didn't yet live in the same house. The wife would continue living in the home of her family, in her father's house. The husband would go about life trying to raise up what is called a dowry or enough money that he might give the money to the father by which he would purchase his bride. Once the dowry was secured, the husband would gather his friends together. They would dress in their best clothes and they would process to the father's house. The dowry would be paid. And then the husband would lead his wife from the father's house to her new home to be with him for the rest of their lives. At that point, shortly thereafter, the wedding celebration would begin. It was a week long party, a week long celebration. And there was feasting through all the entire celebration. And then it would culminate in what was called the marriage supper. And that's the context. As we read these verses, that's the context of what's happening. So, again, look back at the passage and you'll notice here that there's a bridegroom in this passage. He's referred to in verse seven as the lamb Now, if you're new to Christianity or you're unfamiliar with the Bible, you may not know who that's talking about. But if you're familiar with the Bible, then you know that this is a very specific reference to Jesus. The Old Testament prophets spoke about the coming Messiah as a lamb that would be led to the slaughter, as a lamb that would be sacrificed. And we read in Acts chapter 8 when Philip One of the disciples was uh, along a road. He came across an Ethiopian man. And the Ethiopian was reading from a portion of one of the Old Testament prophets from Isaiah chapter 53. And he stopped Philip and he asked Philip, what does this mean? What does this passage mean that I'm reading about? About this lamb that would be led to the slaughter. And Philip unfolds the mystery to him by telling him about who Jesus is as the ultimate lamb that would come to take away the sin of the world by being a sacrifice for sins. And the Apostle John, Paul, Peter all speak of Jesus as the Lamb of God. And Jesus even allowed John the Baptist to call him the Lamb of God who had come to take away the sins of the world. So, when we see here this Lamb, it is a reference to Jesus. Jesus is the Lamb, Jesus is the Bridegroom. But then we also see at the end of verse 7, in verse 8, there's reference to a bride. Again, if you're not familiar with the Bible, then you may not know who that's a reference to. But throughout the Bible, the word bride is, a, is often used as a reference to God's people, to the church. And we think about Paul's instructions in Ephesians chapter 5, where he gives specific instructions to husbands and to wives. And he tells husbands that you are to love your wives as Christ loved the church. And wives, you are to submit and respect your husbands as the church does to Christ. And he talks about how these husbands and wives are to relate to one another. And at the end of the passage, Paul comes to the end and he says, this is a great mystery, but what I'm talking about is Christ... In the church, the bride, the bride of Christ, the bride of God, it is God's people. It's a very common way that God spoke throughout the Old Testament. We even saw that earlier in our assurance of grace from Isaiah and from Hosea. God speaks of himself as the husband and he calls his people his wife, or he speaks of himself as the bridegroom and speaks of his people as his bride entering into a marriage covenant. Well, notice what this bride and this bridegroom are doing in our passage. We see in verse 9, they're getting ready to celebrate this ultimate culmination feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. We see that at the end of verse 9. And so the picture of what we're getting here is a husband and a wife who have been betrothed, the dowry has been paid, and now the bridegroom is coming to take his bride home where the feast will begin. So what's this a picture of? As we come to the end of Revelation, we're being told what begins to happen as the second coming is approaching. We've been reading throughout Revelation about the period between the advent, between the first time that Jesus comes and the second time that he returns. And we've talked about and seen how this time between the advents is a time of persecution and suffering and spiritual battle. But it's coming to an end. And here, as we come to the final chapters of Revelation, we're seeing the final battle is about to take place. Satan and his puppets and the wicked and all of those who are not in a relationship with the Lord will be defeated. And this picture of the bridegroom, Christ himself returning for his bride, the church, to take her to her final and eternal home where a feast awaits. If you're in Christ this morning, if you're a Christian, then you are Jesus' bride. You are married to Jesus. It's official. It's binding. It's unchangeable. Jesus went to the Father and He paid a dowry for us. He paid a price for us. A dowry of great value, of ultimate value. He gave His life on the cross that He might make us His treasured and precious and beautiful bride. Paul said in 1 Corinthians that we've been bought with a price. The blood of Jesus shed on the cross. That's the price that Jesus paid that has eternally secured his people as his very own bride, precious and beautiful. So how do we respond to this? A few things here just before we move on. We'll come back to some of these in a moment. One of the. Things that ought to happen as you reflect on how God sees you as his very own bride. It ought to move you to worship him. It, might, it ought to move you to sing hallelujah, praise the Lord. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. Another thing that it ought to do for you is ought to fill you with hope and encouragement and strength. Do you understand that no matter the circumstances in life, no matter how bad things get around you, you belong to Jesus and he is coming for you. He is coming to take you home. If he paid as much as he did to secure a relationship with you, then we can know for certain that he is not going to let us go. Another way that this ought to make us respond is it should motivate us and inspire us to get ready for his arrival. Did you notice in verse 8 that the bride is described as having clothed herself with fine linen and bright and pure. And then we're told at the end of verse 8 that this fine linen that she's wearing, it represents something. It symbolizes something. It symbolizes the righteous deeds of the saints. The bride having been bought, having been purchased and now waiting for her bridegroom to come to bring her home is making herself ready by doing good and righteous deeds. She's not doing those things to earn the love of her husband or to secure his commitment. Those things have already been accomplished. But as a result of the already established relationship that she has in response to the love of her husband, She is readying herself and preparing herself by doing good deeds and righteous things. It it reminds us of what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 4 through 10. Where he tells us God the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are saved by grace. We are made the bride of Christ by grace because of His love for us before the foundation of the world. But we have been created. To live a life of good works, that fine, bright, pure linen, the righteous deeds of the saints that would glorify our God above all things. So faithfully serve the Lord in your vocations, in your studies. Do good deeds in your home. Selflessly serve your neighbors. Why? Because by doing those things, you are loving your husband, Jesus. You're serving him with your good deeds. I have a friend that recently heard him telling a story about one of his half brothers. Uh, he had, uh, uh, his, his, it was a blended family, and uh, this younger brother came to live in his household uh, uh, at a point when he was a pretty young boy. And uh, this brother, who is now my friend, as well as his brother, are both adults now. And the brother just recently, a few years ago, decided that he was going to move his parents to be with him, to be closer to him. They're becoming elderly. They're needing some care. Uh, and he wants to be able to help them and to serve them uh, in these uh, later years of their life. But he didn't always have a good relationship with his parents. When he was a teenager, he went through a long season of really resenting his parents, especially the rules that they had for him and the rules of the house. And he tells the story about one time in particular, right after he had received his driver's license, he was getting ready to go out on the town with a friend of his to take the car out. And his parents began to ask him all the questions that parents ask as kids are leaving. Where are you going? When will you be home? Who are you going with? What are you going to be doing? And the teenage son, uh, the brother of my friend, began to grumble and complain. And he became very resentful that his parents were bugging him with all of these questions. Why did they care? Why did they need to know? Why can't they just let him be free to go where he wants? He sufficiently answered the questions of his parents in order to put their minds at ease. And eventually he stormed out of the house. And he met his friend and when his friend saw him, he could tell that he was upset. And so he asked him what was going on. And the brother began to tell him how much his parents were bugging him, how they were asking him all these questions and how he couldn't wait to get out of the house so that he could be free from this parental, parental oversight. His friend looked at him and he said, I just wish my parents loved me enough to ask me where I was going. He didn't see the love of his parents in the way that they were caring for him and loving him in the moment, asking him those questions. Those parents kept loving that son through decades of alcoholism, multiple wrecked marriages, estrangement from his children, destruction of a career. But then about 19 years ago, the Lord Jesus got a hold of that brother and he became a Christian. And now... The brother of my friend tells the story on himself, how he didn't know what love looked like when his parents demonstrated it to him over and over again, faithfully over decades. They loved him so much that they remained committed to him, almost as if they were married to him, pledging themselves to him. And all those years later, now he wanted to move his parents next to him so that he could take care of them with almost wor- worshipful care. He's loving them and serving them and caring for them because they loved and served and cared for him first. And the Bible tells us that while we were still sinners, Jesus loved us and died for us, paying the ultimate price to make us his bride. It ought to move us. It ought to move us to love and to worship and to serve him in everything that we do. And it ought to fill us with hope and strength and encouragement to make it through even though even through the most difficult of days. But that's not the only feast that's described here in Revelation 19. We we see another feast that is described here in verses 11 through 21. It's not a wedding feast. It's not a marriage feast. It's a funeral feast. The next part of the vision that John sees in verse 11, he says he saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. As we're going to see here in just a moment, he describes this warrior that's on this horse. And the way that he is described and the names by which he is called will make it easy for us to know who he's talking about, who he sees. How is he described? Well, look at verse 12. He has eyes like flames of fire. Eyes that pierce, eyes that are all-seeing, eyes that have nothing that can be hid from them. Also in verse 12, we're told that he has many diadems or crowns on his head. It's a great contrast with what we saw several chapters ago with the dragon who represents Satan. And the beast, one of his puppets, who had seven crowns and ten crowns on their head. But here we see this one has many crowns, far exceeding the crowns of the dragon and the beast. Verse 13 tells us that his robe is dipped in blood. It's the blood of his defeated enemies, showing that he alone is victorious. In verse 14, we read that he has armies at his disposal, armies that follow his lead. In verse 15, we read that he has a sharp sword that comes from his mouth and he rules with an iron rod. This is one who is all-powerful and who is sovereign. And we also read that he's ready to tread the winepress Of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. That's how he's described. But look at how he is called. He's called in verse 11. Faithful and true. Judges in righteousness. This is the faithful one. This is the one who is truth. The one who is just and righteous. At the end of verse 12. We read that he has a name that is written. A name that is written. But that nobody knows except for himself. Again, symbolizing His sovereign power. He reveals His name to whom He wants to reveal His name. At the end of verse 13, He has the name, the Word of God, and reminds us of the beginning of John's Gospel. The same John that wrote Revelation, where he said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word came into the world and dwelled with us. And then we read that on His robe... And on his thigh, another name was written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. There's no question who John is seeing here as the warrior on the white horse. This is King Jesus, the greatest warrior. And notice he is poised to go to war. The war actually happens very quickly. Look at verses 19 and following. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against the army. Now that... Verse is pregnant. I mean, think about all that has been leading up to that one verse where we now see the armies of Satan and the armies of God, the armies of evil and the armies of good about ready to take place, squaring off with one another. And then we read verse 20. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. The war does not last very long. The battle begins and is over in two verses. After all that we've been reading in Revelation, we come to the great battle, and in two verses it's over. In fact, just in the beginning of one verse where the beast and his minions are captured and thrown into the lake of sulfur. It doesn't take very long for this battle because there's no contest for King Jesus and his followers. The defeat is very fast, but notice the defeat is also very definitive. We get this gruesome, horrific picture Of this feast, this funeral feast that takes place in verse 17 and following. I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God. To eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and the riders. The flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. This This gruesome, horrific, grotesque picture of this funeral, this death feast. And it's symbolizing for us the defeat of Satan, the defeat of his demonic followers, the defeat of all those who would oppose King Jesus. And notice it is final. It is complete. There is no coming back from this defeat. After all, that's why it says in verse three all of heaven sang a hallelujah because the smoke of the defeat of those who oppose the one true God goes up forever and ever. So what do we do with all of this? What do we do with Revelation 19? Well, three things that I want you to think about as we leave today, or as I leave today, you're not leaving, you're in your homes already. The first is a question, which feast are you going to? Everyone goes to one of these feasts or the other. There are no exceptions. When Jesus returns, it's too late to accept the invitation. Only those who are in a relationship with King Jesus will go with him to this incredible marriage feast of the Lamb that we read about in the beginning part of the passage. Everybody else will go with Satan and his followers into the eternal demise, into this eternal funeral feast. That we read about in the second half of the passage, the entire book of Revelation has been giving us a picture of these two sides, two cities, the city of the heavenly Jerusalem and the city of Babylon, two forces, the forces of good and the forces of evil, two armies that are doing battle with one another. And the question this morning is, which side are you on? Which feast are you going to go to? If you're listening to Revelation 19 this morning and you're not a Christian, you're not in a relationship with Jesus Christ, you've not put your faith in Christ alone for your salvation, then let today be the day of salvation. Believe the gospel. Believe in the one true God. Go to the marriage feast of the lamb as the bride of your bridegroom Christ himself. A second takeaway for us today, in particular for God's people, we ought to be people who sing hallelujah. Did you notice in verses one through six, this wonderful demonstration, this, this wonderful uh, description of the singing that is taking place in heaven? And some have referred to it as the original hallelujah chorus. In fact, Handel's Messiah with the Hallelujah Chorus is based on these verses from Revelation 19. We have, we read in verses 1 and 6, A great multitude in heaven, like a roar of many waters, the sound of mighty peals of thunder. And we hear this deafening cry, Hallelujah. This is a Hebrew word that means to praise. Plus the word Yah at the end, which is a reference to God. And so this is a very specific imperative command for God's people to praise the Lord. It's interesting that this word hallelujah is used many times in the Psalms. But it's not used anywhere in the New Testament except for here in these verses in Revelation 19. We are to be about the business as God's people of praising him, of singing praise to him alone. Why? Because as we read in verses 1 through 6, He, his salvation and glory and power belong to him. His judgments are true and just, we read at the beginning of verse 2. He has defeated all those who oppose him and oppose his people, we read at the end of verse 2. He is the Lord, our God, the Almighty, and he reigns at the end of verse 6. We praise him because he is the one who marries us to himself and brings us to the wedding feast. Back in April of 2016, there was a very interesting soccer match that took place. It was the semifinals of Europe's soccer uh, tournament, and it was taking place in England. Uh, the two teams that were playing in this particular semifinal game were Liverpool of England and Borussia Dortmund of Germany. What made this a special game was, first of all, because it was a semifinal in the tournament, but what also made it special is that it was the 27th anniversary of a tragedy that had taken place. 27 years earlier, one of the greatest sporting event tragedies in history took place in Liverpool's soccer stadium. It was April of 1989, 96 fans were crushed to death, 786 seriously injured because of the inadequate security in the stadium. Afterward, in the days and the weeks afterward, the security officers blamed the Liverpool fans, saying that they were uneducated and unruly and it was all their fault. And it became a dark cloud that hung over Liverpool for 27 years. And then in 2016, the 96 victims that were killed were exonerated and the security personnel were held accountable and brought to justice. So at this 27th anniversary game that was taking place in Liverpool in 2016, at this semi-final game against this German team, the stadium entirely filled with red, the official cover color of, of the Liverpool team. And people were holding up signs around the stadium that said justice for the 96. And then before the game began, all 43,000 fans, both English and German, spontaneously broke out in an a cappella version of the Liverpool fight song, You will never be alone. Adopted from a Broadway musical. Listen to the words that they sang together. When you walk through a storm, hold your head high, and don't be afraid of the dark. At the end of the storm, there is a golden sky and the sweet silver song of a lark. Walk on through the wind. Walk on through the rain. Though your dreams be tossed and blown, walk on, walk on with hope in your heart because you'll never walk alone. You'll never walk alone. Walk on, walk on with hope in your heart and you'll never walk alone. You'll never walk alone. 43,000 fans screaming the words almost in a deafening sound but it was only 43,000 can you imagine the multitude in heaven that John is telling us about here in Revelation 19 as They hear Jesus say to them, You will never walk alone. I am with you. My rod and my staff, they will comfort you because you are my own. You are my beloved and beautiful bride and I have bought you with a price and I am coming for you to take you home for the feast and you will never, you will never walk alone. And at the truth of those words, a great multitude in heaven breaks out with hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. You might be wondering if these days that we're living in right now with the chaos and the uncertainty. Is this an appropriate time to praise the Lord in the midst of the health crisis, in the midst of the economic crisis we're facing? Is this the time that we should be raising our voices in praise to the one true God? And the answer is, of course it is. Our praise of the Lord God Almighty is never contingent on our life circumstances. Our praise is based on who God is and what he has done in his creation and what he has done in his work of redemption. Our praise is because his salvation is by grace alone in the bridegroom Jesus alone. So in response, we ought to be praising him with our worship. We ought to be praising him with our words. We ought to be praising him in our actions. We ought to be praising him in both love and in service. Now is the time for us to be praising the Lord because every moment is the time for us to be praising the Lord. One last takeaway for us this morning. Notice in verses 1 and 2 that our God reveals himself as the God of justice and truth. After this, I heard, John says, what seemed to be a loud, a loud voice of a mult, great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. There is for all who have experienced injustice in this world, who have been wronged in this world, there is hope. There is the message of hope that God is the God of truth and the God of justice and that a day is coming. It may not be in this life, but a day is coming when God's justice will be extended throughout the universe When injustices and oppression and suffering and wrongdoing will all become undone and made right. And so that ought to bring us peace and hope that even if I don't get to see and experience justice and righteousness brought against those who have oppressed me and against those who oppress God's people around the world, even if my efforts to bring justice fail in this life I know with certainty that a day is coming when God is going to take care of it. And so that enables me to do things like the Bible says to love my enemies, to not seek revenge, but to trust in the God whose judgments are true and just. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for giving us the entirety of your word and and this morning we thank you particularly for revelation. We thank you that you've given us this letter that you wrote to your people so long ago and yet your people today can relate in so many ways. And so father, we pray that you would take your word and by the work of your spirit, you would press it into us, press it into our hearts and our minds, shape us by what your word says that we might be people that would join Not only our voices together as a church family, but with our brothers and sisters around the world. And we would sing hallelujah to you for salvation and glory and power belong to you. This we pray in Jesus name. Amen.